autonomy. How about now? I'm there. Great. Morning, morning. Well done. Well done. Well, all dramatic. It's gone. Uh, today, we start a new series. And today, I would like to move you towards a question that we will be asking all throughout the series. But to get to move you to that question, I'd like to give you some imagery first. And it's a story. And it's a story that actually leads to why so many of you have this piece of metal that you carry around in your purse and in your pocket all the time. Steve Jobs, sorry for those of you who are not Apple people, but Steve Jobs in his biography tells this footnote of a story right before he makes the Macintosh. When he creates this computer, before it goes public, he says it's not done yet. He actually takes the 40 people who were the biggest influencers in creating this computer, and he brings them into a room, and he says, I want everyone to sign this sheet of paper. And after everyone who helped him build it signed the sheet of paper with their names, he signs it as well, and then in every Macintosh that was created, the names of all 40 people were engraved inside of this computer. And when they go through this story, they noted that it was important that Jobs, who was creating something, knew the people who helped him create what was before everyone. Even though it was hidden, it would be known who influenced it. Even though it was hidden, names would be at the heart of the creation of what he has. And it's more, I like that imagery. And I like that imagery because I think the Boons hit it right on the nose of we are people, when we come in on Sunday morning, we're creating something. We're creating lives. We're building families. We're making ministries. We're leaving legacy. We come in and we are building something. And with what we build with our lives, there are names and there are moments of people who help us become what we are creating. There are people who influence us and create what we create with our lives. Uh, one of the things as a younger minister getting to hang around here for seven or eight years in this congregation uh, is I get to learn how people tick and what influences them, who is written on their heart. So I'll ask questions every once in a while of, uh, of why? why is that person the way that they are? And someone who's been here for a really long time at Highland will be like, oh, that's because five years ago they had this moment and it changed who they were as a family. We have experiences that influence, that are written on our hearts that change us that form us. This also happens with experiences. Sometimes we have reactions that are inside of us. We have these moments that happen that we store deep down in our hearts. And then we have a moment where we, maybe we put our guard down and we accidentally react to something and it just all kind of comes out. It's like a barf of words. And then you say the phrase, well, that, that didn't mean to come out. No, what you meant was, you didn't mean to say what came out. That wasn't an exception. That was actually an impression of the heart, and it slipped out. We have moments that influence us. We have people 
that influence us. And today, we're wanting to get at the heart of this series, we want to get to talking about your heart and the names that may be written next to your heart or the experiences that have informed your heart. But to get there, first we have to talk about God's heart. In order to be informed of our hearts, we look at the heart of God. And that's where this series gets anchored today. Because God's heart described in 1 Samuel, which is the area that we will camp out during the summer, 1 Samuel would describe God's heart as heavy. When you find God in 1 Samuel, God is navigating with the people of God about what to do with the leadership and kingship of God's people. So when they first come, you're seeing that the people are wanting a king. Even though God has been the leader, they are looking around and they're saying, we want a king. And the way that they convince God is the same argument that every teenager makes when needing a cell phone. Why do you need one? Because everyone else has one. The people desire a king. So God gives them a king. And God gives them a king that you would expect would look like a king. 1 Samuel actually describes the king like this. If you'd go ahead and put up that slide. The first king is described like this. In chapter 9, verse 1, there was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, son of Zeror, the son of Berkerath, and the son of Ephath of Benjamin. Man, you really get your reading points in when you start reading 1 Samuel. Kish had a son named Saul, and as handsome of a young man as it could be found anywhere in Israel. And he was a head taller than anyone else. And this is the way that it starts for Israel. Saul is described in this way. He is everything that you would desire. He is shoulder above everyone else. He is good looking. Prominent in that first verse could mean powerful. It could mean rich. He's everything outwardly that you would desire for a leader. But inwardly, something doesn't match up. Now, people have had conversations about Saul for a long time. You will find people that will uh, sympathize with Saul because it feels like he doesn't get a fair shake. You will see others that say King, King Saul is not, is not ready for this. King Saul does not honor what God has given. But there is something that you can't argue that consistently goes around Saul. There's uh, this rabbi, David Whoopi, who, that's a fun last name to say, David Whoopi, he describes that one of the ways that you can find what's hidden in the heart with the Jewish scriptures is pay attention to the first thing that you hear someone from scripture say. What's the first thing that comes out of them? And that sometimes reveals who you're working with. Do we have that scripture? Uh, when they reached the district of Zuf, Saul said to the servant who was with him, Come, let's go back, or my father will stop thinking about the donkeys and start worrying about us. This is the first sentence you hear come out of Saul's mouth. He's out looking for donkeys, which, keep in mind, that's the equivalent of like a pickup truck of today. 
All right, and we are like Texas people. If you misplace anything, you don't misplace your pickup truck. But Saul is out looking for this. You need a donkey. Everyone needs a donkey. And Saul is out looking for a donkey. And his first words that 1 Samuel records is one that's dripping with anxiety of turning around and doing something else. And this trend keeps going for Saul. When Samuel, God's prophet, tries to identify Saul as the king in the first place, it says Saul was hiding. Some translations actually say Saul was hiding behind the gear, which would be very interesting because that's not the last time you'll hear gear referenced. You'll see it in the David and Goliath story. Gear, the thing that protects you, also limits you. And Saul hides behind that. Decisions are made either too quickly or Saul's not to be found during these moments. Whatever it is, you find hidden deep within the heart of Saul something that may have an anxious presence. And where the story ends in chapter 15 is where our text today anchors itself in the beginning. Because at the end of 15, you find that God and Samuel are both in mourning of the way that Saul has led the people. And it actually doesn't tell you, is there anything going on with Saul that's remorseful? You're left to interpret that. But God has intentions moving past Saul and moving to what the next step in this kingship looks like. And that's where we start today. 1 Samuel chapter 16. And then the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I've rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem, and I've chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one that I indicate. And Samuel did what the Lord said. And when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. And they asked, Do you come in peace? And Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited him to the sacrifice. Now, if you aren't convinced yet with the anxiety that Saul has brought, this could be a really good indicator that the people are highly anxious. Samuel, why are you here? You can see Samuel's reaction to think that Saul would kill him. Things have drastically changed since chapter 15. And God kind of does this like, pulls like a line from like a few good men. He's like, they can't handle the truth. So Samuel, here's what you're going to do. You're going to walk in. You're going to tell them this. And then we're also going to make the next move. And this is what happens. In verse 6, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance. Sorry, totally lost my place. <laughs> Air conditioning. 
Okay, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen any of these. The Lord has not chosen any of these. And before you move to the next piece, before you go for the grand finale, the thing that everyone looks for, you need to recognize that even though Samuel is there, he is looking, but he's not seeing. Have you noticed that there's a difference between looking and seeing? Have you ever said to someone before, look over there, and the person looks over there, and you're like, you're not seeing what I'm pointing to. This is what Samuel actually said. God says, I will indicate to you, Samuel, which one to have. But Samuel actually jumps the gun on choosing who it is. And then you have this incredible line that will be the staple of 1 Samuel. God does not look at what is visible, but he sees the heart. He sees the heart. If you think about it, in a lot of ways... Seeing is something that is a high, valuable skill that we are low of. People have actually proven this before when it comes to our vision. You only have a limited amount of vision to be able to see detail. Most of what you see is peripheral. There's a, there's a, a professor, Dr. Simons, who actually came up with a study, and probably many of you have heard of it. He's really known for uh, the invisible gorilla which is the video where everyone's passing the basketballs and gorilla passes in the middle, and so many people are focused on what's happening with the basketballs that they never see the gorilla. He also has this study, which if you'd go ahead and play this, uh, he calls it the door study. And the door study is basically a man is asking for directions, and he is a part of this study. And the strategic point is, in a minute, someone is going to walk in between them with a door, and they're going to switch. They switch people and see, will the man actually notice? And here was the point of the study. Over 50% of the people they tested did not notice that the person had switched behind the door. Raise a hand if you would be one of the people who would not realize. Mm, we have to work on confession this morning, Highland. The point is this, and there's people that could explain it way better than I could. You can only see with a certain amount of detail. You have limited focus on what you can find detail with. And if you do not train your eyes to be able to see what you need to see, you will miss it. And when it comes to this moment, Samuel misses what God is willing to see. But God is very honed in on seeing what's... If God is using attention on anything in seeing people... It is seeing the heart. And this is the heart that he searches to see. Starting in verse 11. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. And Samuel said, Send for him, 
We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health, and he had a fine appearance and handsome features. And then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David, and Samuel left. There's a little bit of irony in that, because that word outward appearance, if you were to look at originally how it was written, it literally means the eyes, that God does not see the eyes. God does not have the eyes that humans see. And what God sees in that moment with David is he sees one who is hidden, not hidden on purpose, but hidden doing metaphorically what kings were known to do. Protect those who couldn't protect themselves. That in this moment, he points to the one who's not seeking attention, but the one who is an afterthought, the one that they would call the younger brother, the one that they would see that wouldn't seem to contribute that much to what they were doing. And you think about when the first Samuel tells this story, there's a little bit of a bend to it because you look at it and first Samuel says, David is the eighth son. But in 1 Chronicles, this parallel passage that talks about it, they refer to David as the seventh son. Which makes you have to wonder, was David the afterthought? Was David the less than? Was David the right one? Was David the obvious one? Which way does it get told? And this is the heart that God is looking for and that God is bringing to lead the people next in this moment. This is the life of David in his heart. And David will move forward from days forward and be a part of what God is doing. Matter of fact, David will find himself in the right places. Matter of fact, just next to this passage, you will find Saul, the current king, invites David into his house. And that his presence is one that Saul enjoys so much that the text says, Saul loved David. He loved him. But for all those who have read this passage before and the passages that come after, Saul will be torn. He will love him but he will also despise him. Can I tell you what you're going to see this summer through the series? You are going to see the torn feeling this summer of the life of David. Let me put it to you this way. Um, have you ever been on social media? I know some of you are already going to laugh. Have any of you ever been on social media and every once in a while you run into someone that you haven't seen in years and they are just completely different than what you've seen. Or maybe a better parallel for those of you who are like, I, I don't do social media, I'm past that, I'm above that, okay. Uh, maybe, have you gone to a high school graduation? 
or a college graduation, and periodically you see someone who you don't get to see day by day, but you see them periodically and you have a different reaction every time. Like sometimes you see them and you're like, oh, they, uh, they don't look as good as they used to look. Or you see them and you go, wow, they're pregnant now. Wow, that is hard for me to visualize. Maybe you see a post one day and you're like, oh, wow, they are, they are angry. They are mad about that. That's not who usually they are. If I were to describe the summer for you, each week, every Sunday is going to be that same feeling. You are going to get to see moments of David that may tear you apart a little. They may divide your heart. You may see a David one week that you go, that is honorable. You may see the David the next time, though, and say, what happened? What happened in this moment for David to be like this? You will love him, but you may have moments where you despise him. Because even in this passage, even in this young, 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 young David, there's still hints of what's to come. One, he's listed as the seventh son, but he's the eighth son. Was David, was David the pick? The next thing is that it says he was beautiful in outward appearance. Or if you take that text literally, his eyes were beautiful. What's that even mean? That means that David is going to have some of the same attributes as Saul. You know, we always say that phrase of like, man, it must be a burden to have those good looks. The Bible would say, yes, yes, it is. Because the greater the beauty you have, the greater potential for trouble that you will have in the future. And as you'll learn next week, the first words that you see come out of David's mouth are also revealing. In the moment with David and Goliath, where David's sessions, will that's only appropriate, right? David talking about David. The story of David and Goliath, the first thing that you will hear come out of David's mouth when he hears the situation is he says, what will the man receive that takes down this Philistine? What will the man receive? David will try to have it all. And David will try to do it all. And this summer, you will get to see all the different ways that David tries to do it all. You'll see the moments where you'll see the love, the moments that you fall in love with him, and then you'll see the moments that you'll do the opposite of falling in love with him. Moments that are honorable, moments that are sketchy, moments that you don't know what's happening, moments that you do know what's happening. This is the life of David. And what's hidden becomes revealed through his life. The focus of this summer is to be able to see that in the midst of David's heart being divided at times, David's heart seeming something that's hard to exactly nail down, it actually speaks to the heart of God. That God is one who has a heart for divided hearts. That God is one who's in the middle of messy, messy life and messy situations. And God is still able to work. Which is really good news for those of us today who come in. And we are very torn in how we follow God. 
Today is really good news for those of us who hide behind our failure, behind our success, who hide behind a heart that desires to do something better but constantly gets distracted. God has a heart for your heart. God has a heart for my heart. And God is at work in the middle of everything that happens. And the best news is the news that comes from 1 Samuel 16. I, I heard one person uh, say, when it comes to knowing someone, there are some questions that you need to be aware of to truly know someone, to experience deep intimacy. And one of those questions is the question of, can you answer for the person that you're trying to know? Can you answer the question, what are you capable of? Do you know what I am capable of? Because to know the answer to that question is a deep, intimate question. I wonder if the reason we know so much about David compared to anyone else is he knew what God was capable of doing in his life. He was capable of having God written on his heart. He was capable of being able to have God be a part of his story. You know, a lot of the Psalms, which is just the written form of the heart, are attributed to David. And Psalm 23 is an example today, one that we've read together as a congregation, because David knows this thing, that God is not only the divine parent that starts with his life, and that one day he will be the judge of his life, of his final breath, David knows that the in-between, God is Psalm 23. He knows that the Lord is his shepherd and the Lord shepherds his heart. What's the point of today? The point of today is knowing that God's heart has a heart for us. That God's heart is to shepherd us in the middle of our lives. And knowing how God guides, rests, informs, moves us to where God desires. That divided hearts do not get in the way. And David's life will show that this summer. So maybe we need to ask ourselves, what is God capable of doing through me? Maybe we need to ask ourselves, have we considered what God is capable of doing in the people around us? in those in our family, and those in our spouse, and those in our friends? Have I vocalized what people are capable of because of God and God's heart through them? And also, I think this text asks for the question of, instead of being so highly anxious of the future of the church, do we know and recognize the way that our young people are capable of telling us the ways that God is going to work in the future? Are we people who are allowing ourselves, allowing our hearts to be written on by God? David turns his heart towards the God who writes on hearts, the God that is willing to work with a divided heart. And even though David, who will have terrible moments, even in the David who at times is forgotten, even though the David, that one 
who is a no name will one day be the name people will reach for when they're talking about the Messiah. They will ask, are you the son of David? David is the one who gives his heart to God, has his heart written on, and his family lineage brings the one who we've all been waiting for, the one that could do what you and I could not do, and that is be wholehearted. So Father, Son, Spirit, we pray that you open us up this summer to what you can do through this series. God, we recognize that in our divided hearts, David has helped not give us a model, but has given us a demonstration of what your heart is like and your willingness to form us, to work with us, to guide us and shepherd us. Lord, may we lean into your goodness and your mercy, even for some of us today who do not feel that. God, may you guide us, may you lead us, and may you shepherd us. It's in your son's name. Amen.